All right, so with Thanksgiving done, now let's start to talk about Christmas. We're going to celebrate Advent today. We're actually just going to begin that celebration. Advent, it's a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. It's about the first coming of Jesus when he took on human flesh and was born into this world 2,000 years ago. Churches traditionally celebrate Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, because that gives us some time to think about and to celebrate and to anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 because each morning of Advent we're going to light a candle and and study a passage. And this morning it's prophecy. We lit the prophecy candle this morning to remind ourselves that actually there's a lot about Jesus in the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament told us a lot about who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. And one of those passages is the one we're going to look at this morning. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where God is going to give us six powerful words to describe and encapsulate Christmas. Okay, so let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy about the coming of Jesus. Start in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land of the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This passage is all about Christmas. So I want, I want to pause for a second and ask you to think, what words come to your mind when you think about Christmas? So when it was like Friday, so Christmas had just ended and it's, or Thanksgiving had just ended, it's time to think about Christmas. What things come to your mind? Maybe words like Santa, reindeer, presents, shopping, stress, trees, lights, decorations, eggnog, family, elf, the movie, not the freaky guy you put up on a shelf. There's all sorts of words that might come to your mind, and usually they're going to be words associated with traditions. Traditions that we practice here in modern America when we celebrate Christmas. And these are good things, good words. But I want, what I want you to think about this morning is what are the words that God would want to come to your mind when you think about Christmas? What are the words that get to the root, to the deeper meaning behind Christmas? Well, God actually has given us six words here in Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7 
That he wants us to associate with Christmas. And so this morning, I'm going to walk you through these six key words from this passage. And my goal is actually at the end of the sermon to help you connect those six deeper words with your traditions. I'm not going to ask you to like not do a tree or not give presents. You're going to do that stuff. That's great to do that stuff. But what I want you to do is, is to reconnect those those traditions with the deeper meaning of Christmas by remembering and talking about these six key words. So six words from Isaiah 9 that describe Christmas. This is what God wants you to think about when you think about Christmas. So word number one from this chapter that should come to our mind when we think about this holiday we call Christmas is the word scandalous. And that was probably not the word you were expecting Probably a lot of other words that you would think I would put on the board. But the passage begins with scandal. When I came to Texas A&M for the first time back in 1994 as a student, this town of College Station felt small. Because I grew up in the north part of Houston. That's a city that covers hundreds of square miles, filled with millions of people. College Station felt like a tiny little country town in the middle of nowhere. There was just cotton and cows as far as the eye could see. And every time I felt a little bit embarrassed to live in a tiny little town, what I would remind myself is, well, at least I don't go to Texas Tech. Because you want to talk about a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Lubbock is in the middle of desert. Nothing but dirt as far as the eye could see. Well, that same attitude existed in the time of Jesus when he came to Israel. You see, Israel was really far from the center of the world. That was Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Israel was a tiny, insignificant country. It was nothing compared to Italy or Greece or Egypt, the major powers of that part of the world. So if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem in the first century, you were tempted to feel embarrassed about the insignificance of your town. Jerusalem was nothing compared to Rome or Ephesus or Alexandria, but at least you could remind Mind yourself living in Jerusalem. Well, at least I don't live in Zebulun or Naphtali. Now, those are probably two names of places you've never heard before unless you've read this passage. Those are two of the least significant of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every time in the Bible that the 12 tribes of Israel are listed, Zebulun comes last. The tribes you're familiar with are like Judah and Benjamin. Those are the really significant tribes. You read a lot about them. Parents today name their kids after those tribes, but I don't know any parent who names their kid Zebulun or Naphtali because they were really insignificant tribes back in the first century. Easy to overlook, easy to forget. They were far away from Jerusalem. They were far up in the north by the Sea of Galilee, and they were actually populated predominantly by Gentiles, not even by Jews. They were practically not even part of Israel anymore. And so the idea that the coming king of Israel would be born, not in Jerusalem, but Naphtali, Zebulun, that was ridiculous and scandalous. The king of Israel born among Gentiles in a backwater forgotten place? That's crazy. And yet when you really think about it, everything about the birth of Jesus is scandalous. We tend to overlook that. We whitewash it. Our traditions make Christmas look warm, cozy, comfortable, pretty, but it wasn't. 
that first Christmas was full of scandal. Jesus was born in poverty, in a manger, in a feed trough alongside the leftover slop. He was born to a poor family. We know that because when, when Joseph and Mary, when they went to make a sacrifice for Jesus, they offered two turtle doves. That was the sacrifice that poor people made. So the king was born into the scandal of poverty. More than that, the king was born to a scandalous woman because Mary wasn't married. Mary had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Now, she knew it was God because Gabriel came to her. And Joseph knew it was God because Gabriel came to him. But the town didn't know. Jesus was born in a scandalous way to a scandalous family. Why? Because God wanted to show us how much he loves us. That he would send his son in the midst of scandal. And God wanted to show us what he thinks about the norms and values of this world. He cares nothing for your wealth. He cares nothing for your propriety, nothing for your popularity, nothing for your nobility, nothing for your fame. That's completely insignificant to God. He cares nothing for the values and norms of this world. Instead, when God chooses to identify himself with the human race, who does he identify with? The poor, the forgotten, the ridiculed, the scandalous, the ashamed. That is whom God connects with most closely. And so Christmas is a reminder to us that God was willing to enter the scandal of this world to become one of us in poverty and ridicule and neglect and abandonment. He wanted to become part of that to show us he cares nothing about the norms and values of this world. He cares about us. He loves us that much. So when you think about Christmas, first word that should come to your mind, scandalous, incredibly scandalous event. Second word that should come to your mind, light. Look at verse 2 again. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What is it about light? We often hear about Jesus' arrival on earth 2,000 years ago as a light. So he's a great light in Isaiah 9. In John chapter 1, he's the light of men. In John chapter 8, he's the light of the world. Why would God want to describe the arrival of his son on earth as light? Well, think about what it's like to walk around your house in pitch darkness. So no night lights, none of those little electronic blue lights on, moon's not coming in. You're walking around the house pitch black. In my house, that is terrifying. Because my kids love Legos. And no matter how hard you try to clean up the Legos, there are always some that escape and end up on the floor. And if you step on them in your barefoot feet at night, it hurts. It's torturous. Worse, though, would be walking around someone else's house at night that I'm unfamiliar with. When I was finishing seminary, Julie and I lived with her parents in their second story for a while, and I had to put nightlights in the hallway to find my way to the bathroom at night, because if you turn too soon, you would end up going down the stairs. There was no door, nothing, just boom. I would die. And so I put nightlights because walking through unfamiliar territory in the dark is a fearful proposition full of pain. Well, that's not just true of literal darkness. That's true of spiritual darkness. So many people in this world are living in spiritual darkness. They cannot see the way through life. They can't see what's in front of them. They can't see what to do in the moment. They're stumbling around, trying, groping to find their way. 
God doesn't want us to live in that darkness, to experience the the fear and anxiety and pain that comes from stumbling in the dark. And so he sent his son to be our light. So what does it mean that Jesus is our light? It means that when Jesus came to earth, he taught and he modeled what a good life looks like. So you are blessed because you know the light. You know the way through life. You know how to act. You know what to care about. You know how to treat other people because you can look to Jesus. That's why it's such a blessing that we have four gospels in the Bible. Have you ever wondered, why didn't God just give us one story about Jesus? Why did he give us four? Because that's your light. He wanted you to have four lights rather than just one so that you could look at Jesus from four different perspectives and see all that he taught, all that he cared about, how he treated other people, how he lived, how he followed God, how his religious life worked. God wanted you to see Jesus so you would see your way through life. God does not want you stumbling through this life, stepping on Legos. He wants you to know the way. The way to live a good, godly, gracious, successful life. If you follow Jesus, you are walking in the light. Jesus is the light of the world. That's the second word that should come to our minds with Christmas. And it is actually the reason why so many traditions in Christmas are connected to light. It is actually meant to be a godly thing when you wrap your tree in lights and when you put lights up on your house, if you're going to do that, and when you put candles in the window, there's a spiritual significance there. You are reminding yourself and teaching your children that Jesus is our light, that God did not curse us to live this life in the dark. He sent his son to be our light so that we could see our way. So enjoy those lights. Take your kids around the neighborhood. Show them the the pretty houses and talk about how Jesus is the light so we don't have to stumble through the darkness in this life. So Christmas, second word that should come to our mind is light. Third word that should come to our mind is gladness. Look with me at verse 3. It says, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Gladness, it means a a pure joy, an exuberant joy that takes over your body. You can't help but, but rejoice in it. I want to know how many of you watched the 2012 A&M versus Alabama game when we won. Johnny Manziel's freshman year. Yeah, I see some of you want. I watched it alone in my living room because my family's on football. And, and so I'm just alone in the living room. And I remember distinctly when we intercepted that pass at the end of the fourth quarter and sealed the victory. I jumped up from the couch and screamed at the top of my lungs. And I wasn't doing it to impress anyone around me. There was no one else around me. And jumping up and screaming, that's not the kind of person I am. Those who know me know that's not me. Why did I do that? Because that's joy. That's what gladness looks like. You cannot put a lid on it. You cannot control it. It just screams out from you. Christmas is about gladness. Jesus coming so that we can have that exuberant joy forever. Now the problem is that's not Christmas for most of us in this life. For most of us, Christmas is a time of stress. 
Because you have a ton to do. You got to decorate a bunch of stuff, wrap a bunch of lights. And I just told you that's spiritual. So now you really have to do it. And that's making you feel more stressed. And you got to do all of this stuff with family. And you just feel anxiety over that. For others of you, it's not stress. It's sadness. Because Christmas brings back thoughts of a loved one who's died. Or painful memories in the past. Or makes you just feel incredibly lonely. And so in this life, Christmas is often associated with stress and sadness, but what God wants us to recognize is that Christmas is a promise to us that in the future, we will have unending gladness. Christmas is the promise that when Jesus comes back for us and we see him face to face, all of the stress and sadness of this life will be wiped away and we will have nothing but unending gladness forever. So that moment when you jumped off the couch and screamed as we intercepted the ball, that's eternity for you right there. That's your forever. You're going to be in the air, off the couch, hands raised, screaming in joy as you see your Savior face to face. The first coming of Jesus guaranteed that that will happen in the second coming of Jesus. We will have unending gladness. So it's not an experience yet. It's a promise of what we will have when he comes back. So gladness, that's the third word for Christmas. Fourth word from this passage for Christmas is peace. Look with me at verses four and five. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Christmas is about the arrival of a leader who would bring perfect and unending peace. Such complete peace that there will never be a need for soldiers again. And that's what it's getting about when it, when it talks about cloaks and boots burning in the fire. Soldiers will take off their military fatigues, their military boots, and throw them in the fire because they'll never need to be soldiers again. There will never be a soldier ever again. When Jesus comes back. That's actually a a repeated theme throughout the book of Isaiah. One of my favorite verses in the entire book is chapter 2 verse 4. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. There's coming a, a day when there will never be a need for a weapon again. There's a day is coming when we will scrap and melt down every Abrams tank and every M16 and we will take the raw metal and turn it into plows and and pruning hooks, basically tools for blessing. That's what that's about. You plow the earth. You can create life out of the earth. We will take every weapon and turn it into a tool, into an implement for blessing people, for creating wonderful, beautiful things. A day is coming where there will be perfect peace. Now, we don't have it yet, but it is coming. And it's going to be perfect peace unlike anything you've ever experienced. Right now, we don't have actual peace. There are small wars going on in many places. And there is a big war called the Cold War that still exists because we got a couple countries pointing nuclear weapons at each other. This is called a a cold war because strategists, basically, they they have this phrase, mutually assured destruction. United States and Russia have enough nuclear weapons pointed at each other that if either attacks, both are guaranteed to be annihilated. That's not peace. You have never known peace any day of your life. That's not the kind of peace you will have when Jesus comes back. 
He will bring such a complete and utter peace that there will never again be a weapon. In fact, we won't even learn war again. There will be no need for West Point in the kingdom of Jesus. Because there'll be no reason to train people how to kill other people. That will be finished. There will be no violence, no strife, no oppression, no slavery, no war, no death. Only perfect and ending peace. Christmas is a promise that peace is coming. The king of peace has been born. He rules in heaven at the moment. He is bringing peace soon. An unending and complete peace. So that's the fourth word for Christmas. Fifth word that Isaiah has for us when we think about Christmas is a phrase, God with us. It's three words in English and Hebrew. It's one word. Anybody know what that word is? God with us. Emmanuel. Many people think that's a name. It's actually not. It's a title. God with us. God from heaven with us in the flesh. That's the point of the most famous verse in this chapter, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A child will be born to us. That's telling us that Jesus came in the human way. He came as a human being like any others. He was fully human. He was born out of Mary in the normal way. Jesus didn't get like a magical C-section. He didn't just all of a sudden appear fully grown. He came as any other human being. But he wasn't just any other human being because it tells us in the verse he is mighty God. And that's the phrase to underline there. All four titles that Isaiah gives us are significant, but that's the one that really stands out. Wonderful counselor, that's not like a counselor you see when you're struggling or depressed. That's actually a term for a wise military leader, a great strategist, a really wise person. Prince of peace, that describes a king who would bring peace to earth. Eternal Father, that's not talking about God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. Father there is a term for a king who watches over his people. It means a really good king. He would be your really good king forever. But the title that really stands out is Mighty God. Mighty God tells us that Jesus, while he is fully human, he is also fully God. He's not a part God. He's not like God. He's fully God because he's mighty God. And that word mighty takes us back to creation. When God the Son, Jesus, created all things, it tells us in John chapter 1, everything that's been created was created through Jesus Christ. Creation is expression of the power of Jesus' words. He creates out of nothing by merely speaking it into existence. So Jesus is God with us, God in the flesh. We call that the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. God the Son took on human flesh so that he was both fully human and fully God. Now that's a lot of theology. Why does that actually matter to you? Well, here's what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, But one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Jesus became human so that he could share in our suffering, in our pain, and in our experience of life in this world. 
Jesus took on human flesh so that he could do life like us so that he would understand it. Christmas means that God understands you firsthand. He understands your pain because he's experienced it. He understands your suffering because he's experienced it. You see, on that first Christmas when Jesus took on human flesh, he began to experience all of the painful parts of this life, just like you do. When Jesus took on human flesh, he learned firsthand what it was like to grow up poor. Absolute, complete poverty. He experienced it. He lived in it. He knew what it was like to be exhausted. The creator, who has infinite energy, he limited himself so that he could feel fatigue. Such fatigue that he had to sit at a well, John chapter 4. He couldn't even stand up anymore. He knew by experience what it's like to be rejected. When Jerusalem rejected Jesus, he wept over it. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be afraid. Jesus was terrified in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. So overcome with fear and anxiety, he sweat drops of blood. He knows what it's like to feel pain as the Roman soldiers ripped the skin off his back with whips. He felt that. He didn't have some kind of divine morphine running through his veins. He felt that pain. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He hung on the cross naked and alone. He knows what it's like to die because he really did die. So Jesus, God in human flesh, knows your pain and your suffering firsthand. He understands it completely because he's been there. And that's what allows him to be your perfect high priest, your perfect God, because he knows you intimately. He can have compassion and empathy for you because he's felt your pain. That's why Christianity is so much more compelling than Islam. Islam believes in a God named Allah who lives far up there, transcendent and removed, immune and isolated from the pain and suffering of this world. Christianity believes in a God who became one of us, who suffered every part of human experience, who felt the pain, who felt the rejection and the loneliness and the abandonment and the grief, who wept when his friend Lazarus died. He's felt it all. And the result of that is that he understands you. That's what Christmas is about. Whatever pain you're in, whatever suffering, whatever temptation, whatever struggle, Jesus has been there. He understands it firsthand. That's why he is your perfect high priest and your perfect God. So fifth word to describe Christmas, God with us. Sixth, forever. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus will rule on the throne over the universe from then on and forevermore. Jesus' kingdom began on that first Christmas day 2,000 years ago, and it continues today and will continue forever. Christmas was the beginning of Jesus' eternal kingdom. But actually, my favorite part of that verse, what I like is not even so much the forever part. It's right at the beginning of the verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Jesus' kingdom has begun 2,000 years ago. It continues today. It will continue forever for countless billions of years. And yet no single day in the kingdom of Jesus will be static. 
every single day will get better than the day before. Because there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So I don't know if you've ever thought of it. That's one of those lines that just kind of gets rolling around in my head and I can't sleep because I'm just chewing on, on the metaphysics of that and try to think about what that means. So heaven will get better. What is that? Heaven's going to be perfect and yet perfect is going to get better. I don't know how that is. How do you improve on perfection? I don't know, but God has figured it out. He knows how to do that. And so when you have been in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth for a billion years, you will wake up on a day and say, this is the best day I've had yet. And then the next day you'll say, wow, this is even better. And then the next day, this is even better. That's forever. There will never be a day in all of eternity where you'll say, well, what's next? Every day will be the next thing. Every day will be the better thing because every day will get better. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. It will only ever get better. And the kingdom of Christ that began on that first Christmas day 2,000 years ago and that you will be part of forever. So what is Christmas about? Six words. Six true, deep, meaningful words. It is scandalous. It is light. It is gladness. It is peace. It is Emmanuel. It is forever. You can put it together this way. What is Christmas about? Christmas is the scandalous gift of eternal light, gladness, and peace that God has given us through his son, Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is a gift of these things, but let's just be clear. It is a gift that God does not force on you. Jesus died to make this possible for every human being who has ever lived. But God gives you the choice. Do you want this or not? Would you like these things in your life? If so, then you have to say, God, I believe. I believe Jesus really is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. I believe he came to give me peace and light and and hope and gladness forever. I accept that. I receive that gift. If you are ready to receive that gift, then this is true for you forever. You just have to say to God, thank you for giving me your son. If you're not yet ready to believe that, if that just seems too far-fetched, I would encourage you, please come talk to me. Come send me an email, write me a letter, come by the office, call me, get in touch with me. I would love to talk with you about whatever intellectual objections or experiences in your life are keeping you from believing that Christmas is real, that Jesus really came. 2,000 years ago. Now, for those of us who have chosen to believe that Christmas is real, that Jesus came, God in the flesh, to die for us and rise from the dead, how should we apply this? This is where I want to get really practical for a moment. I want to give you some ideas for what you and your family can do this year to reconnect the traditions. I know you're going to celebrate. I want you to buy presents and put up a tree and do that stuff. I want to help you reconnect those traditions of modern America with these deeper eternal biblical truths. So I'm going to give you some ideas for how you can do that. Um, Let's start with, with the first one. The idea of scandal. At some point, um, maybe you will set up a manger. I hope you do, especially if you have kids. You're going to pull the parts of the manger out of the box, and you're going to put them on your table. And that is a great teachable moment. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Mangers, they're not about decoration. They're about teachableness. You get to teach your children about what happened. So the first thing that you do is you gather your children around the manger, and you help them understand that that is not what it looked like. It was not precious moments on that first Christmas morning. Okay, so walk them through. What really happened? 
Well, Jesus was born likely in more like a cave where animals lived and ate and defecated and died. It was stinky. It was awful. It was dirty. There were not lights like this. It was dark and cramped and there were insects everywhere. And Jesus, as a baby, was laid in a feeding trough, not some beautiful stone-carved feeding trough. No, it was just a place where they put slop. So there's remnants of rotten food. It's covered in bacteria. There's nothing sanitary about the manger. And so you talk about with this with your children, and then you get this opportunity to ask them, why? If God created the world, why would he choose that place to show up? And you realize he could have created the Taj Mahal. Boom, he's there. Why did he want to be born here? And you begin to draw that out of your kids. Well, because God is humble. God wanted to show us. He doesn't care about our wealth. He doesn't care about our possessions, about our big homes, about our prestige, about our fame, about our clothes. He wanted to show that he doesn't care about that stuff. What does he care about? He cares about love. He cares about sacrifice and selflessness. And who are the people on earth today that look the most like Jesus did that first day? Well, it's not us in our nice houses. It's the poor. It's the neglected. It's the forgotten. It's the homeless. Those are the people whom God connects with the most because that's how he chose to be incarnated on that first Christmas morning. So your manger scene is one of the best teaching tools you have. Set it up and then bring your kids around and talk to them about what it shows you about the heart of God. It's the manger scene. You can use that one to talk about the scandalousness of Christmas. Second, you're going to put up lights. I hope you do somewhere, even if it's just a few. Put up some lights and talk about the meaning of that light. For the, for the kids, if you've got kids, it's a great time to teach them about light. If you don't have kids yet, it's just a great time for you to remember. I actually think it's a really godly thing to drive around the neighborhood at night in December and see all those beautiful homes. And for a moment, think about the fact that this isn't just about Christmas. This is about God reminding us of what Jesus is. He is the light. If all of these lights went away on a cloudy night, it would be pitch black and we would feel fear. We would not know how to get safely home. And so God gave us light so that we could see how to make it through life. So enjoy looking at Christmas lights, but use that as a teachable moment to yourself or to your kids to remember that Jesus is our light. That's what's going on when we decorate our homes or our tree. Third idea. At some point, you will probably sing Joy to the World famous song. You should sing it at some point. I want you, when you sing it, to think about the fact that Jesus is our joy, but we may not feel it yet. So we sing joy to the world at the time of the year when we are most likely to not feel joy. Isn't that ironic? We're feeling stress and sadness, and there's that whole seasonal affective disorder, and it's cloudy all the time, and we're just frustrated. And yet we sing joy to the world. What's that about? Well, it's a promise. No, I don't feel joy now, but I will. Jesus is the joy to the world coming because he came the first time. We will have perfect joy when he comes again. And so that's a reminder. There's hope in that. There's peace in that. There's joy in that moment. I can sing that song joyfully because I know there's a day coming when I'll experience nothing but perfect gladness forever. Fourth idea. At some point, maybe you'll sing Silent Night, maybe with your kids, and you'll get to the end of the song, and you'll sing about sleep in heavenly peace. And that's such a beautiful phrase, because it captures this this truth that in heaven there is peace today. 
There's no like nuclear weapons pointed at each other in heaven. There's no strife. There's no oppression. There's no slavery. There's perfect peace in heaven where Jesus is. And that is coming with him when he returns. So Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he's going to bring gifts. The Bible tells us that. And one of those gifts is he's going to bring that peace of heaven with him. It's going to stretch down onto the earth and envelop the entire earth. And so when you sing Silent Night, reflect on that for a moment. What are we celebrating? That because Jesus came the first time, there's going to be peace. Peace will win, period, when Jesus returns. Fifth idea for you. At some point, you're going to give presents, and I encourage you to do it. I know there's a lot of Christians who think maybe we should pull back from the whole present giving thing. Maybe we should put limits on it. But the basic idea of giving presents actually began with a really spiritual and deep meaning. The first time that people began to give presents to each other during Christmas, the reason that they did that was to show one another what God had done for them by sending Jesus. It's actually a spiritual meaning to that. I give you a present because I'm saying I believe that God has actually given you the greatest present of all. Much better than whatever little trinket I just handed you in a box. That's just a symbol of the greatest gift, God with us. Jesus in the flesh. And so I encourage you, at some point, you're going to unwrap those gifts. Still do it. Still tear them. Have fun with that. Take pictures. But maybe right before you do it or right after you do it, maybe gather your family together and pray for just a moment. Pray and tell God, thank you for giving us the greatest gift of all. Thank you that as fun as these presents are, they're nothing compared to the gift of your son. Thank you that by giving these presents to one another, what we're really doing is reminding each other that we've already received the greatest thing ever through Jesus. Okay, so use that gift giving as an opportunity to reflect on the great gift you've already received. You can actually redeem gift giving. It doesn't have to be all about consumerism. It can be about Jesus. Sixth and final idea. Uh, December 26th comes every year. The day after Christmas is the saddest day for all children and even for many parents, although some of us rejoice. But for a lot of people, December 26th is sad. When I was a kid, I always felt sad on December 26th because I knew it was like 364 days till I get Christmas again. And there's that feeling of sadness. Well, I would encourage you to redeem that moment of sadness by reminding your kids that this Christmas they just finished is only one of an infinite number of Christmases they'll have in life. How do I know that? Well, because Christmas was day one of the kingdom of Jesus. And what do we tend to do with like day one of things? Well, think about America. What do we do? July 4th, we celebrate it every year, the day our nation was founded. Well, I think for all eternity, we're still going to gather on whatever December 25th means in eternity. And we're going to celebrate Christmas because that was day number one of the beginning of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate Christmas forever. And so you can remember this, kiddos, is just one of the Christmases you will have. The infinite Christmases. And I promise you, the ones coming in the next life are much better than this one. You can get something way better than G.I. Joe's. It's going to be awesome. And so think about that fact. When we celebrate Christmas now, it is just one of an infinite number we will get to celebrate for all eternity. So Christmas is a meaningful time, but we can get so caught up in the traditions that we forget to connect them to the deeper eternal truths that we can find in passages like Isaiah 9. So I don't want to tell your family to go like stop doing all the American Christmas stuff. All I want you to do is to take those traditions you're already going to participate in and reconnect them to these deeper biblical truths so that you and your children can remember what this season is really about. It's about a scandalous gift of light and peace 
and joy that your Father has given you forever through his Son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Let's thank God for this gift. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for what Christmas is. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that it is a time of great joy, not because of presents or trees or eggnog or any of that, but because of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you sent your son. We thank you, Jesus, that in your humility you were willing to be born in a filthy, dirty manger to a family who was poor and ridiculed and God, we we praise you and we thank you that you are not caught up in the values of this world, that you are not captivated by our wealth or our possessions or our fame or our prestige, that instead that you value humility and selflessness and sacrifice, and we see that in Christmas, and we pray that we would remember it this year. We pray, God, that as we celebrate the traditions of this season, that we would slow down long enough to reconnect those traditions to these deeper biblical truths. We pray that you'd help us to do that with our kids, especially as they grow up in a, in a consumer world that is so captivated with all their traditions. Or we pray that you would help them to see the deeper truths that are behind these traditions. God, that when they, when they ask for presence and receive presence, that it would actually remind them of the greatest present that has ever been given, the the gift of your son, Jesus. We pray, God, that today, as many families are decorating trees and hanging lights on the house, we pray, God, that our kids would see that you, Jesus, are our light, that you, Father, are good. You didn't leave us to stumble through the darkness of life on our own. Instead, you sent us the beauty and brilliance of your son, our light in this world. We thank you for that. We pray, Heavenly Father, that throughout this season, over this next month, that your spirit would bring these six words to our mind, that we would constantly be coming back to these six truths and remembering how good and how gracious you are. Thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, so much that you were willing to come for us. We praise you and we thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. And I'll see you next week.